This is Speak Earth. I'm Case Bradford. Thank you for tuning in to this episode with Robbie Sansom. Robbie is the co-founder and CEO of Force of Nature. Force of Nature is on a mission to improve our environment and health through regenerative agriculture, which is absolutely awesome. Robbie is powerful. He's passionate. He's brilliant. And I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. It was a real honor to be able to share some time and learn from the wisdom that he has, because in a lot of ways, he's the tip of the spear in our mission to fix our food system, to evolve away from industrial agriculture, which is absolutely plaguing our society. We talk a bit about that and we riff on regenerative agriculture, which is the future, which is a much better system for all involved. And we detail some reasons why it is so essential. Force of Nature as, as a company, they offer amazing meat that you can get through the mail. You can pick it up at Whole Foods, Sprouts, or find it at some restaurants like True Food Kitchen and Hop Dotty. You can get a burger with Force of Nature meat, which is amazing. Personally, I love the ancestral blends that they have. I believe it's the best health food product ever created, best food product ever, ever, ever created. And we talk a bit about why that is in addition to the amazing aspects of wild boar and how chicken is definitely not better than beef in any way. That's an entire myth, which is an important concept to understand, a common misperception that we can learn and we can help our friends and family understand. And that's what this is all about. If we're going to change our culture, it's all about understanding what is happening and sharing that knowledge, wisdom, and experience with others. And I really appreciated the opportunity to learn from Robbie and share it with you all. The sponsor of this episode is Force of Nature. Scroll down to the show notes, find a link for 10% off your order. Just tap there and fill your cart with some of the best meat available on this planet. There you have it. Enough rambling for me. Appreciate you tuning in. Thank you. And I hope you enjoy this episode with Robbie Sansom. How are you? Doing all right, man. How are you doing? Doing great. Really stoked to connect with you and, and co-create this, this podcast episode. I've listened to a bunch of the episodes that you've done on, on other platforms, uh, Meat Mafia, Kyle Kingsbury, Dr. Mark Hyman, just to name a few. And you've got your own podcast as well, Where Hope Grows, which is just incredible. And I've really enjoyed what you're sharing. So I'm stoked to connect and create this this episode with you. It's a, it's an honor. So thank you. Oh, man. Thanks for the kind words. I really do appreciate that. That's uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear it. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad to have an opportunity to talk with you and hopefully reach some folks that uh, we, maybe we can inspire them to help create a better food system. Yes, that would be awesome. That, that's a deep passion of mine as well. And for folks who don't know, Robbie is the CEO of Force of, of Nature. And it's, it's an amazing company. I remember when I first found out about it years ago, it just blew my mind to think that people are doing this. It is such an audacious operation, providing people with regenerative meat through, through the mail. And over time, it's just grown and gotten better and better. So it's, it's amazing work that you're doing over there. Well, we try to keep getting better. Uh, and, I, and I think we got a hell of a team that's, that's supporting those efforts. And I, I agree. I think we've made a lot of progress in a lot of places and not just direct to consumer online, but also in, in many, many thousands of retail locations and um, in a bunch of uh, food service locations like you know awesome spots like hot dotty and true food kitchen and you know some local places just it's it's been a wild ride and it's it's fun to see the impact we're having and and to know that there's folks like you and hopefully some of your listeners out there that appreciate uh what we're doing uh, we're, we're trying hard <laughs> it shows and speaking of force of nature just to start i'd, I'd like to know if you have a, a favorite piece of nature or an area w within the realm of nature that just has your heart Man, you know, it's funny. I, I think about that sometimes. And there's just something majestic about the mountains, those grand vistas and just the stunning, these, those epic views, you know. Um, and, I, and, and, you know, growing up in Texas, I actually grew up here in Austin. And, um, and you know, that, that, that was always a, a, an escape, a place to get to. And so, you know, that's on, on the list. But I, I, I do love the beach, you know, and not the, the, the sort of like sit, sit in a chair on the, on the beach and, and fall asleep and let the, let the waves roll by. I mean, that's cool. That's a, that's a great way to relax. I do like that, but I, I grew up fishing in the, in the bays of the, um, in the Gulf of Mexico and South Texas and uh, along, you know, the largest barrier reef in the world. And there's so many, like there's marshes and wetlands and like the, 
the birds and the other wildlife and, you know, hand feeding wild dolphin as you're fishing and, you know, it's just, it, it, the, the, it's just so many things to appreciate of just being immersed uh, in, in, in that sort of environment. But I, I did just read a book uh, by Dan Flores called the American Serengeti. And he paints this incredible picture of the American plains as one of the most re remarkable menageries of, 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 of life and stunning um, views when, when looking at, you know, millions of bison and pronghorn and, and wolves and grizzlies in the plains and all these things. And, and so when you ask that question and sorry to be such long with so long with it on the answer, but it, it ties into what we're going to be talking about in agriculture and how we've converted those land bases and taken, you know, probably potentially one of the most amazing pieces of nature and, and, and ecology um, and wildlife and, 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 and truly devastated and destroyed it and dumbed it down into some desertifying food production systems. It makes me think of what, what probably would have been my answer if I if we would have rewound the clock a couple hundred years and had a chance to really appreciate um, the incredible resource that we had at our fingertips and still could have if we make some really important changes in how we practice agriculture. Absolutely, I, I think everyone can imagine their favorite piece of nature in in their mind, and then think about what it'd be like if, if that land was was devastated by bulldozers and turned into monocrop agriculture with cornfields or wheat fields or apple trees or almond trees or whatever the large corporation decided to be grown there as a cash crop. And th this happens all over the world, it happens a little bit less in America, but it did happen in a big way. And we're still suffering as a result of, of those decisions today because that food ends up being nutrient depleted and basically turned into junk food. And as a result, we're all suffering, well, not all of us, but a large portion of our population is suffering from obesity, which is a form of starvation, nutrient starvation. To think that half of our population is suffering from a form of starvation is absolutely devastating. And the industrial agriculture is a big reason why, and you're doing an amazing job promoting the alternative, which is a new solution, relatively speaking, also an old solution, regenerative agriculture, regenerative farming, and primarily through ruminants like bison and, and beef. Yeah, thanks. Well, you definitely highlighted a lot of the challenges that we're trying to address for sure. I can't, we can't take <laughs> anywhere near the credit that, that, that we'd like for, for, for that, but I think we're, we're contributing and I think there's a lot of momentum and a lot of folks out there like yourself and some of the folks you mentioned and some of the people we work with together that are, that are helping to really give us inertia in this movement. But um, I think the most important part of um, pursuing and, and, and succeeding in the pursuit of any real and meaningful change comes at the hand of consumers. And that's what, that's what fires me up. That's what gets me just like, hell yeah, man, like we're going to win this, um, knowing that there's good people out there, just like yourself, just like myself, my family, our friends, people that connected us that actually care and, 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 and frankly are victims, um, of a food system that's failing them and, and failing the people that they care about and the communities they care about and the lands and animals and wildlife and their own health and wellness and the ge future generations. And, you know, knowing that we can help them connect the dots and gain an appreciation for this alternative food system, knowing that the status quo, the existing food system is failing. I mean, it is, it is an inevitability. There is not an alternative to an alternative. We must, change before we cease to be able to produce food uh, of any kind, let alone food that is nutritious and valuable and honorable. Um, and I think that we have the easiest, most logical path forward in regenerative agriculture. And I think that is what consumers are looking for is something that aligns with their values, that serves their, their needs and doesn't put too much of a burden on them um, to get involved in. And, and, and that's what we're here to talk about. What I love about the way that you share this is a lot of people who are into regenerative agriculture, they, they maybe could be seen as more, I guess, kind of left brain, almost, you could write them off as like, oh, you know, this, who cares about this little hippie operation? You, you know, it's less than 1% of the food that's, that's being made, but you're coming at this from a very analytical standpoint. And if I were to ask, hey, could we scale regenerative agriculture? I already know, we both know that's a silly question. I think a better question is, can we not scale regenerative agriculture? Yeah, can we afford not to make the necessary changes? And I, and I think the, the the degree of challenge. The, the, let me. I'll I'll re, I'll start over. The I think the scale of agriculture is unbelievable, and I don't think most people appreciate it. But I don't think it's outside of their grasp to conceptualize it because 
we all have these experiences where it's right in front of us and we just don't, uh, we aren't able to, uh, just like capture it in the moment, but, you know, just in the United States alone, you know, 50% of the land mass is, is under some form of agriculture, you know? So it's like, look how big our continent, you know, at least the United States portion of our continent and recognize that, that, that 50% of it is being disturbed by our agriculture practices versus, you know, and that's, and that's, and that's concerning, right? Because when you look at the externalities, the negative externalities and the consequences of much of what we do, uh, agriculture is one of the primary um, contributors to, you know, atmospheric carbon issues, drought issues, food scarcity and food security issues, loss of pollinators that we need to produce food, losing 1% of insect species globally every single year, fertility declining at remarkable and you know, existential rates, dead zones and oceans, cancers and autoimmune disease and things like glyphosate showing up in breast milk and urine. And I mean, I could just spend the rest of our hour listing off the challenges that are produced as a consequence of trying to enforce our will and manipulate nature against its desires and inclinations. And the reality is there's a, there's an end date. Like that just, that just can't go on forever. You deplete, you deplete, you mine and extract and eventually no matter how advanced our technology, we're not going to be able to continue to invent our way as out of the hole we're digging ourselves into. And regenerative agriculture turns that around and, and, it, and it works and it says, hey, instead of combating nature, instead of using chemical and mechanical warfare to fight its desire to promote life and promote these natural cycles, let's work with nature. Like, let's make nature our ally and promote those systems that we produce, the health of those systems that we produce food from so that we can produce healthy food and set so that those systems can thrive and not be racing towards a cliff with how we're, we're desertifying them or damaging them to the point where they can't sustain us any longer. And so, you know, I think when you, when you look at how as human beings, we approach problems, we, you know, we try to, sometimes we just try to find the most complicated way, or maybe the way that might, um, channel the most resources, let's just say a way to get really rich um, by, oh, hey, let's invent this new form of food where we take the exact same resources and we perpetuate the status quo and we process it into something that looks different. And we we sell it as a bill of goods. We paint it kind of pastels of green and white and beige maybe, and we call it better, but it's, it's really no different. And the, and the truth is, you know, nature this planet, these ecosystems, these natural and fundamental cycles that all life rely on have perfected themselves over billions of years of evolution. We, we are not going to outsmart that. We are not going to outwit or invent uh, or compete with that. You know, we are actually losing. If you look at the consequence, everything I just laid out, the consequences of those things are making life more challenging, making our problems greater. And the simple solution is to try to harmonize with those processes, leverage those processes to produce all of this is potential. All of this is available readily with very little um, external energy or resource or need for manipulation. It just takes really more than anything. It takes a mindset shift. And I think the food producing communities are at the forefront of being able to do that. But they're sort of stuck, much like the other front lines, the consumer is sort of stuck in terms of all of the things in the middle, right? The, the food producers want to improve the quality of their land. They want to um, improve their own health and the health of their community, which is in decline um, and failing. And you see towns shuttered all across the country. Consumers want healthier food. They want more cost-effective food. They want food that they can be proud to serve their family. that doesn't cause them to become obese and cause 80 or 90% of our population to have comorbidities and cause in the most advanced civilization the world has ever known, our life expectancy to be in a state of decline for consecutive years now. Um, and that's that's at our fingertips. Um, we just have to raise that awareness so that the people on the front lines, whether it's the food producers or the consumers, um, you know, have the opportunity to support that system. And I think I think we're on the cusp of being able to do that, but I think it takes those two forces rallying together to create that groundswell which sends the signals through the system, the supply network of processors and, and, and food producers, and, and even the political system and the regulatory environment and, and, and the policies that we have. Um, 
it's 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 amazing to me how much control and how much power and how much opportunity we have to to go from being um, victims and go from being um, you know having to just accept what's available to being able to drive and enforce and influence the the change that we want to see. So I'm pre- I'm pretty excited about it. And I, like you said, I think there's absolutely no way that we can continue the, on the path that we're on. We have to course correct and slowing down or sustaining our current trajectory does nothing for us. You know, we need to, we need to set a new bearing and that bearing needs to be one where we invest in our food production systems and our ecosystems and the, and the welfare of animals and wildlife and the people that produce our food and the people that our food serves um, and the system should be prioritizing outcomes for those constituencies and not for their own, you know, bottom lines and our federal government who we elect to serve and support us and our well-being need to be serving and supporting us and our well-being and not taking dollars uh, to perpetuate the status quo to drive the bottom line for incredibly large multinational um, food complexes and chemical complexes, petroleum and, and pharmaceutical, these massive industries that are, you know, influencing our reality. Really well said. And so true. We've got the foundation of our civilization built on complete insanity. Industrial agriculture makes no sense. We produce massive amounts of food. A ton of it gets wasted. I think something like 40% just gets tossed, thrown away into the landfill. And then the food that does get served makes people sick. And on top of it all, we can't keep doing it for the next, we've only got a few decades left of, of like power in the soil there because it's a chemical based agriculture system. And we're relying upon these chemicals continuing to flow. And then it's just complete insanity. All, all of it. We've got to return to sanity, return to nature, return to collaborating in a way that allows us to come to a place where we're able to find harmony and health and a better future. And it is really exciting and absolutely amazing that there are people working on this day in, day out with a ton of passion and bringing this to people in a way that is accessible and affordable. And I know a lot of people may balk at the idea that it's affordable. You know, hold on. I thought this kind of food was only available to the elites. But as you've described in in many of your other podcast episodes, it is, in fact, affordable, especially when you compare it to some of the junk food that's out there. Oh man, I, I love this one for sure. And I think you touched on a really interesting one on nutrient density um, or, or how depleted we are in, in many key nutrients, things like iron and magnesium. And, you know, there's, there's a long list of them. And, you know, there's been pretty extensive research done on the best sources of and bioavailable sources and, and qu- quantity of those key nutrients and, and that we're lacking. And it tends to go back to, you know, animals and organs and the things that we've really distanced ourselves from in this journey um, uh, and this, that, you, that you described in, in, in this food system. And, and then I think, you know, it's not just the, the policy. It's not just the practices on the land. It's, it's how people are manipulated and influenced and um, the system that sort of affects the way people think and see the world where we look at, you know, some of these things as, as expensive, as you know, it. and I think the, you know, many of the examples you're probably referencing or, or I'll, I'll point out that, you know, force of nature meat is certainly some of the most premium meat in any, in any supermarket that you'll find and, and it's priced accordingly. And yet it is still half the price per ounce as Ruffles potato chips, um, you know, at 55 cents an ounce. Uh, and ruffles being, you know, upwards of a dollar ten, a dollar twenty an ounce for a bag of potato chips. Those are seen as cheap. You know, you find those in the aisle at the checkout stand, and people see that as very inexpensive. And and yet, well, it will make you sick, and it will cause harm to you. And there are massive, and it will not sustain you, and it will not nourish you. And yet, our our product will will not, you know, have any of those side effects. And so, um, you know, I think you look at the shelf price. There's a lot of ways you could look at the, 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 what people pay for smoothies and what people pay for coffees and what people pay for wine and bourbons and olive oils and nuts and all these things that are dramatically more expensive than high quality animal protein. And yet the expectation is and the belief is, you know, that this meat is 
is elitist or expensive and it's not. I think it just takes a shift in, in, in our perception and our awareness and our understanding. And I think that's happening. You know, I think for a long time it was calories in, calories out. And now people are starting to realize that there's a little more to the equation and that empty calories are bad. Toxic calories are worse. And most of our calories are toxic calories now. Um, and so, um, and, and, and I think that that all speaks to shelf price or sticker price. And it doesn't speak to, you know, the ex, the, the, the other consequences we've talked about food source, uh, scarcity and, and the stability of the food system. We've talked about destroying our, our ecosystems that produce food and, and, and wildlife and, and oceans and, and declines in our own health. These are all the, the, the long-term costs that should be baked in. Um, to the cost that we that we consider, and I think you know one example we, I, I did some back of the napkin math, and you mentioned Mark Hyman, and his estimate was that you know three point one trillion dollars annually go to the treatment of of chronic disease, largely those diseases of Western civilization that you know are primarily caused by poor diet um, and, and, and lifestyle, and if you were to assign that cost to the average household's grocery bill, it comes out to something like $700 a week per household. You know, and so if we begin to think about cost of things in terms of the true sense, the true cost, the fully baked in cost, healthy whole foods coming from these systems that are virtuous, um, where, the, where the consequences of them are positive and the externalities are celebrated versus, um, those systems where that are industrialized and mechanized and, and where the externalities are, are devastating and potentially existential, but are swept under the rugs. I mean, we just need to open our eyes and begin to see the big picture. And, and um, I, I, you know, I hope that we're able to continue to make progress in doing that. Absolutely. And for folks listening, externality essentially describes a negative consequence. So if you were to buy ruffles, you brought that up as an example of, that's a you know popular product that people are buying. The negative externality from that is worse soil downstream and then ill health from you. And then everything that goes downstream of that, it may be time in the hospital, that may be money that you have to pay the healthcare system. And then also the, the money that you give to Ruffles, they can then use to fund more marketing efforts to manipulate more minds into buying more of their products. It's this whole ripple effect. And there's a, a positive consequence from buying Force of Nature, the exact same thing, but opposite in all the good ways. So you're going to consume that meat, you're going to be more nourished, you're going to be more energetic, you're going to be in a better mood, you're going to be able to better be of service to those around you and the land itself will be flourishing, there'll be more bees, butterflies, earthworms. And it's just, it's night and day. If we want to form a flourishing future, we've got to reallocate our decision making more towards this form of agriculture, meat, food. And it's, it's a beautiful path that we can all choose to take every single time that we decide to buy food and fill our bellies. And I think one of the ways that we're suffering is through a web of lies. And we don't have enough time in this podcast to unspin all the web of lies. But I think a big one that I have personally been turned on to in this past year is dispelling the myth of chicken. So I think a lot of people believe that chicken is, is a more healthy choice for themselves <laughs> and for the environment versus beef. But I think we both know that's that's not true. Oh, man. You know, I feel like, like chicken was the original plant-based meat, like the impossible and beyonds out there took the blueprint that chicken, that chicken laid out. It's like villainize something and present yourself as the solution or the, the better alternative with no factual basis for doing so. And, and in re reality, you're likely worse than all of the attributes that you're claiming to be better for. And then somehow you get credit for it. And, you know, and I think if you look at the consumption rates over the last generation or two of beef, I think we've gone down in beef consumption, maybe 80% and we're up in poultry consumption, like 300 or more percent. And if you look at, you know, you look at the welfare side of it, you know, we, we, I, th I think we kill something like 30 million head of cattle a year for, for food. We kill like 8 billion with a B chickens. And the environments, you know, most cattle are, are raised on, 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 on land, you know, and they live on, on ranches and you see them on the side of the road and those can be managed poorly and they can be managed really well, but at least they're outside. You know, it's, it's really the, the last half or, or, or few months of their life where they go into these food lot systems that are truly uh, devastating and, and, and need to be changed. We fight hard to change it, but, but the poultry, that's what they live their lives in. They are only ever in these confined barns with no natural light, no natural air. 
fully contrived and, and, and curated food. They're selectively bred to be sick. They have favored genes that are effectively mutant genes that make them grow so fast that, you know, they will, they will die um, from obesity if they aren't harvested and they're, and they're designed again, selectively bred to favor really cheap subsidy corn and soy. So, you know, they're in no way the Southeast Asian jungle fowl um, eating these diverse diets of fruits and bugs. And, you know, again, monogastrics that aren't designed to be vegetarian, they're designed to play a really important role in a forest or, or, or jungle ecosystem. And we've totally mined them down into these, feed conversion machines that don't even have many of the key characteristics of that would be fundamental to biological life on this planet. They don't evade predation. Another chicken will come up behind them and start pecking them and they won't even evade or fight to defend themselves. If they're, if they're sitting over food, they're just going to keep eating and they can't breed on their own. I mean, it's just, it's, it's truly sad because it's not the bird's fault. You know, they're, they're are truly sentient beings and they deserve our care and, and, and respect and they're victims in this system as much as any other livestock animal, but the system is grotesque. The, the nutritional value of that food is completely waning and it leaves much to be desired. It pales in comparison to, to red meat. Um, and, and to me, that's like, to me, that's sickening, right? Again, we talk about nutrient deficiency, you know, and I mentioned iron as one of them and it's, it's, it's women and in developed nations specifically, where I think it's some astronomical figure that you mentioned like 40% obese. I think it's something like 40% of women in this country are, are nutrient deficient in iron. Now somebody should check that because I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I don't think I'm, I'm far off. And you don't, you're not going to get that in any measurable or meaningful quantity from chicken. You get it from red meat, red meat. So the things that we need, the things that we are literally starving ourselves of are available in the system <clears throat> That we were trying to villainize and, and, and move consumers away from if we if we say that poultry is better for you, which it's not, better for the planet, which it's definitely not, better for the animal, absolutely not. I mean, I don't I, I do I cannot think of one attribute that favors poultry over red meat. Now, we sell poultry. We have a very less than five percent of our business is is is, is poultry. I think there's a role for it, right? I mean, again, these are animals that live in ecosystems and we want to follow nature's blueprint. Um, there's a time and a place um, that they can play a, a really positive role in biomimicry and providing ecosystem services to food production systems. But as you've heard me say, there's no point in history on any continent where humans followed large herds of chickens around uh, to be our primary source of food. Um, you know, here in North America, it would have been bison and pronghorn and elk and animal, you know, uh, and, and, and deer and, 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 and so on. And, um, you know, we replicate that natural reality with beef now for many complicated reasons, which we could get into if we have time. Um, we are not replicating anything by eating more chicken than we do beef by producing more chicken in these truly synthetic and industrial environments. Um, we are absolutely doing the opposite of, of what nature would have intended for, for those animals, for the land or for our own health and well-being, And, and I just don't think people understand. It's amazing to me that chicken gets credit for being a better option in, in any capacity um, than a ruminant animal. And again, ruminant animals being multi-chambered stomach, ungulate animals like bison, like beef, like the, the deer and elk and antelope that I mentioned and, and, and chickens um, being a monogastric. And I think that that's a really important point it's a little scientific but it's important to understand because the ruminants are essentially out there turning grass sunshine and water into the most nutrient-dense food on this planet it's an absolutely amazing and that's just a small slice of what they're doing they're doing a lot more with their manure turning that into powerful soil that we can then grow crops on there's providing so much to the cycle to the system to this biosphere and the reality is that if we eat more ruminants, there will be more ruminants and then we'll all have a better ecosystem as, as a result of that. Ruminants being beef, bison, lamb, lamb as well. Have, have you guys thought about selling lamb? Is that, is that on the, the schedule you think at some point? I, I love lamb and I, and I really love some of the incredible things people are doing 
with lamb now when you look at solar grazing you look at fire mitigation and and there's so many cool things that goat as well um, and goat's the most popular protein on the planet not here um I, I, at, at some point it's it's very possible we do we are doing so much you know we're violating some of the fundamental rules of business by doing by doing a lot of things and so it's important that we you know find our guardrails and maintain focus in key areas and and you know um but I would never rule out lamb or, or, or goat. I think I, I love them there. It's a polarizing flavor profile for many consumers. We, we did that in our prior company Epic and, and it was our, my favorite item that we offered and our least popular item that we offered. And so I think we just have to be mindful of how do we manage the business and its ability to drive all the positive change and serve all the world in the way we want, along with, you know, some of our own personal preferences or some of the, the other more niche preferences and opportunities out there and find the right time and place to, um, put focus and energy into those and make sure, I mean, there's, there's a really, there's some really great and incredible minds out there that we, we, we all borrow from, but we've got, we got to be careful that we don't let the, our good ideas take away from our great ideas. And I, you know, I, I have heart for, for lamb for sure. And, and I love lamb producers and I'll refer them and I buy it myself. And there's, there's a possibility out there someday. I don't, I don't know when, um, but I, I'd, I'd, I'd like to, because I think, they just do an incredible, I think they're incredibly nutritious. I think they taste wonderful. And I think they play a really critical role in, in again, in ecosystems and solving some pretty big challenges that we're facing. I agree. Ab- absolutely awesome. And and just to circle back and tie, tie a bow on what we, we were talking about, the ruminants are one thing. We described those. The, the monogastrics have, have a single stomach. So it's chicken and pigs and what they eat. If that's corn and grains, then they're going to accumulate fat more aligned with with that and as I have a higher omega-6 ratio and be a little bit uh, much more inflammatory than than you would find with red meat or ruminant meat so which and that's a big reason why we want to favor ruminants for nutritional reasons as opposed to monogastrics opposed to what people would say about the heart health nonsense that has been disproven a million times over the decades yet still seems to linger in the collective consciousness for for whatever reason and speaking of, of monogastrics and, and a fascinating aspect of force of nature is wild boar, which, which are just absolutely amazing. You did a full episode on where hub grows about wild boar and it blew my mind. I, I had no idea that, that these beasts were so amazing and I believe you you've hunted them as, as well. Well, I, I, I've, I have hunted them. Um, wild boar are really, I mean, I think so much of this world is complex and you have to appreciate nuance. You know, these are not animals that are native to this continent or native to these ecosystems and they're incredible. Um, you know, pigs in general are incredible. They're highly intelligent. Um, and they are, um, you know, generally in the systems where they, where they've come from, you know, they have a predator prey relationship that keeps them in check. Um, and without that predator prey relationship, um, they are so intelligent and they are so versatile and they reach sexual maturity at such a young age and breed so often with a short gestation period they truly can have a population explosion. I mean, we think of rabbits or, or rats, you know, we're, ta- we're talking that almost, almost comparable rates of um, survivability if there's not some mechanism to control them. And this is an invasive species, a non-native species that was brought here, got out and has exploded, certainly across Texas um, and now across the entire country. And you're beginning to see how they are devastating um, ecosystems and, and and that's that they're either out competing or destroying habitat for native animals and causing extinction themselves, you know, just by doing what they do, what they were designed to and evolved to do through biology, but, you know, applied in the, inc- in, in, in the incorrect context, um, it's causing real ecological damage. Um, and then you look at what they do to food production systems, billions of dollars a year in crop damage and, 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 and loss of, um, you know, food that would go into our, our, our food system. And, um, and, and it's just growing, it's just going to keep growing and growing and growing unless we figure out some, some way to put, um, to control this, ex- this population explosion, um, these consequences will just get worse. And so for us, it was an interesting way to offer a, a monogastric like a pork, but it's wild boar. Um, these are actually wild animals um, that are that are captured in, in, in as humane as possible ways, transported humanely and harvested ultimately and processed in USDA facilities. And so in my opinion, 
way better than traditional pork because they've had a diverse diet. They've thrived. They've, you know, you are what you eat and they've been getting and upcycling all the incredible bounty and nutrition and phytochemicals from what they've been foraging in wild landscapes. Um, you get more flavor, I think. Um, and again, from a food safety and quality perspective, processed through the exact same facilities as, as, as any other USDA species would be. And, and in the meantime, um, you know, not, not only do you get to enjoy the quality uh, of that, of that meat and eating experience, you're helping address and mitigate um, this ecosystem disaster that is these invasive species taking over. You hear about invasive species, right? You hear about pythons and, um, you know, certain species of fish and certain, you know, these things, the list goes on and on. Um, but, you know, I don't, I don't, I mean, pythons are pretty devastating in the Everglades, but I don't know that there's ever been anything that's exploded with as much geographical impact uh, as pigs. And I think the, I think just both the EPA, but I think the international, uh, well, I mean, they're, they're considered on a, on an international level, um, a major danger to our natural systems um, by all science and, and governing bodies. So pretty wild, pretty wild story there. I don't, you know, you have to listen to the episode on where hope grows to get the, the to go deep and get the facts. And it's probably much more interesting than how I just tried to distill it into a couple of minutes. But, you know, for us, I think that's a really interesting way to help support a cause and honor the animal in the practice, right? Again, the animal's not doing anything wrong. It's doing what it was here to do. It doesn't deserve um, to be poisoned or, um, or wasted. Um, but, but it's, it's proliferation does need to be addressed. It is absolutely amazing. And for people who don't know a pig in a wild boar is the same animal, same, same animal. If you let a pig out into the wild in, in three months, it will just transform. It'll grow tusks, thicker hair and become more aggressive, essentially transforming into a wild boar, which is just crazy to, to think about. And, and something similar kind of happens with human beings as well. If, if you're currently living a sedentary life, mostly indoors, if you start spending more time outside <laughs> and giving, engaging in movement practice, you know, training hard and eating, eating you know, a lot of proper food, like, like ruminant meat, you're going to transform as well and become a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more rough and tough. And uh, it, it's pretty cool to think about that, you know, these things happen with, with animals that are out there morphing. And I'm also astounded by the fact that we don't hear more about this. There, there are wild boars out there causing hundreds of millions, billions of dollars of damage. How come we all don't, don't just get together and eat all these things? They're delicious. You know, it's like, what's going on there? You know, it's interesting. I don't know how much you know about coyotes, but wild, wild pigs aren't much different. And I think some of the latest research shows that if you, when you apply pressure to a population, meaning if you start hunting them, um, they spread more rapidly. And um, <clears throat> so I think some of our historical efforts to address their growth have promoted and perpetuated their growth. And so I think some of the latest research says the way to limit them is you have to, you have to capture entire sounders, meaning like a, a, a whole unit or, or, or herd or group um, at once. You have to capture it so that some don't escape off and then go spread. Um, and again, that's what we're doing with large capture systems and then transporting those and eating them. But there's a lot of infrastructure that it takes to do that. You know, there's a lot of um, a lot of people on a lot of land have to be on board with this trapping and then this transporting. And, you know, there's, there's a small market for it in a small niche and we're trying to increase that demand. Um, but you know, that that's easier said than done. There's so many myths and misnomers about the quality of the meat or the safety of the meat that I think make that more, more challenging. Um, and, um, you know, I think there's also a real risk that, there as you build a market like that there becomes an incentive for bad actors mm -hmm. and there have been historic there have been recorded cases of people saying oh there's hunting operations that make money by people paying to hunt wild boar okay well i'm gonna go capture some wild boar from texas and i'm gonna move them up into a northern state of montana or something like that and you know you introduce a problem to because a market has been created that somebody can, can capitalize. And so it is, it is complicated, you know, it's not cut and dry and easy. And, um, you know, I, I think not again, like many things in life, not, not without nuance, but you know, nothing is not an option. Uh, and I, and I think some of the proposed solutions like mass poisoning 
of wildlife hoping to only target pigs is a completely asinine and, and, and non-realistic solution. And I think, you know, hunting from helicopters, again, it's a market opportunity for somebody to make money and probably live their dreams of, of a video game. Um, but there's an animal welfare compromise that you're making there. And again, it will likely, as I you know, explained, promote proliferation and growth and expansion um, and not really, not really cause a major decline in the population of the animals. So it's not really addressing the core of the problem. So, you know, our hope is that we're supporting the solution and trying not to create, you know, uh, an, an incentive, uh, but a solution, uh, an incentive to promote the problem, but an incentive to help mitigate the challenge. But it's a really complicated one. It's, it's, it's going to continue to become to be that. And it's going to take some some real focus and energy. But um, we're trying to play a small part. We've got the majority of our effort and energy, again, is on the ruminant animals that are um, you know, honestly saving the planet if we, if we let them and, and frankly are currently being villainized and boy, it would be, it would sure be devastating if people thought the solution to our problems was eliminating the solution to our problems. Absolutely. And in that vein, the, the wild boar that you do sell is, is one of my favorite cuts available through force of nature. It's absolutely delicious. Some other amazing cuts are the, the venison tomahawks you have are just astounding. The good those are just crazy and then the ancestral blends so you've got venison bison beef and then chicken ancestral blends and for people listening this is a ground meat with organs added in and you do not taste the organs it's 10 percent liver and heart and this is honestly the most innovative health food offering i think probably of all time i i will i will stake a claim and say this is the most innovative health food product of all time. I challenge anyone to think of a more innovative one, because if you think about the ease of nutrient density, the convenience and the affordability, and, and really what you're getting there is, is an amazing source of nutrient density, consider it from, from the organ meats, which are the most nutrient dense foods on, on this planet. And you do not taste it. That's the biggest turnoff for people. Oh, I don't want to eat a whole liver because it, you know, it has a, a different sort of metallic taste, which even though what you're tasting there is, is the nutrients, that's, that's the the medicine, right? A lot of all good medicine kind of tastes a little, a little funny and the liver, liver is no different, even though I, I enjoy it. But the ancestral blends are such a beautiful way to incorporate this in, into your life or your children's lives. And it, it's just, did, did you guys come up with that product from, from scratch or how, what was the story behind the ancestral blends? I mean, people have been grinding organs into, into their ground meat since before we did it. And we came up, we, we, we came up with the idea of an ancestral blend in terms of the name of it. You know, I, I've been hunting my much of my whole life and I've been eating and grinding organs um, and, and ran ranchers, you know, some ranchers have done it. Um, you know, I, I think for us though, I mean, certainly like people have never heard of it. It was obscure, probably off-putting sounding uh, to many people. But I, I thought, I think for us, when we started Force of Nature, it's one of the first, you know, we launched ground meat and we launched that product and, and you know, at the exact same time. And um, that was the very first year that life expectancy in, in, in the United States declined um, in terms of, you know, each the generation being born, having a shorter life expectancy than their parents. And um, and it was almost like a point of frustration, you know, like, man, how is it possible that we live in this civilization at this age and all of, have all of this opportunity and we're and we, we've just we're losing our birthright of health? And, and, and longevity is um, is, a, is a consequence um, of that, and and yet we've also distanced ourselves from our biological reality, our human nature of being on the land, and uh, you know eating the diets that we evolved to eat, and living in an, an evolutionarily consistent life. And like when you think about from a food perspective and from a meat perspective, our ancestors would have sought out the organs first. Um, you know, you see it celebrated in films and you read it in books and, um, and in history. And, you know, it's like, these are the most nutrient dense parts of the animal. These are, um, the richest sources of the most fundamental things that we need to thrive and live. And the fact that we're having this conversations because it's so provocative that we've introduced organs back into the diet. Is, makes it self-evident just how far we've drifted away from, you know, our our design and our needs. And we knew that we weren't just going to simply say, hey, guys, you're really making a mistake. You should eat more liver. Um, 
but we also knew that we, we could introduce it into into the blend in a way that um, would bring all of that positive health value benefit and quality into the diet without asking people to start eating liver and liking liver you know, effectively and in you know true story the first batch that we got um from you know r d like are we going to sell this stuff i made it into hamburgers and i fed it to my nieces and nephews not on a hamburger i gave them just a piece of meat on a plate um you know, and they, you know, they ate it and they're like, Oh, uncle Robbie, your meat's so good. Like, this is, this is really great. You know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I didn't tell them that there was organs in it. That was the, that was the experiment. You know, it was very, uh, very rigorous controls for that, for that experiment. But, you know, the idea was like, if, we, if I can get my nieces, if I can get kids to eat organ meats, um, which is again, a superfood and, 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 and the most healthy and nutrient dense food imaginable, um, then, I, then I think we're on to something. And so, you know, we called it our ancestral blend because that's what our ancestors would have preferred. And I think it's addressing um, modern challenges of health and wellness and, and, and restoring our, again, um, our, our, our true potential for health and longevity. And that's a little bit of the story behind, behind the product. We can't take credit for being the first to do it though, but um, I think we've really popularized it. And there's a whole lot of folks that are now starting to do it on our heels and even calling it ancestral blends, uh, in, in the process, which, um, uh, you know, we started, but, um, that's a little bit of the story behind it. Beautiful. I love that, that, uh, control and, and the, uh, the experiment to see if it tastes good. And it is, it is that good just to give some folks ideas of what to do with it. The same thing you do with any ground meat, you can make burgers with it, meatballs with it. I don't even add anything to the meatballs. My ingredients for meatballs are just the force of nature, ancestral beef or bison. You don't need to add anything else. It tastes delicious. And a third one that folks may not have tried is a pizza. So you basically just take the ground beef, kind of flatten it and do like a, a pizza crust shape, put sauce and cheese on it. It's absolutely delicious. It's not the same as a pizza, but it is delicious. So if anyone wants to try it out, those are, those are three easy and, and delicious recipe ideas to to get going. And I guess in, in that, within this realm of, of organ meats, I know a, a popular thing right now is is desiccated organs. So like a supplement, it's a dried supplement. And these these are really just so much better than than the dried, you know, supplement. Not not to throw shade at, at anyone kind of promoting more nutrition, but a dried desiccated supplement is not going to be the same thing as, as eating it, you know, in its true and, and, and natural form. Have you thought about making force of nature desiccate organ supplements has that been on the docket or is that just not in the wheelhouse at all no no it's not it's not in the wheelhouse i mean that, that would be shelf stable dry different category a whole different thing there's there's a lot of reasons and there's other people doing it you know and it's like we don't need one more of those and our whole point is you know to open source things not to try to centralize and and capitalize on what somebody else is doing and those folks that are doing it deserve the credit for for you know for their contributions to this movement. And, and I would add that, you know, when we started putting organs in the food, again, going, going back to Epic and doing bars and, 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 and jerkies that, that incorporated, and these things were um, byproduct of, of animal processing, you know, like you could, they would, they'd be happy if you, you know, you know, hardly to have, have to pay for them. They were happy if you would take them. Um, and now in many instances, the hearts and livers cost more than the, the, the ground meat. Um, you know, we'll get questions, you know, some of our products, the, the, or the ancestral blends are more expensive than the regular. And they're like, you're cheating, you're, you're, you're charging. It's like, they actually cost more. And, and so, you know, I, I think this awakening, uh, of, of people that, Hey, this is important. I need this for my health. There's a lot of people out there eating more, eating more organ meats, thankfully. And that has created a more, more demand for those products is, raised prices and has made them, you know, because put pressure on supply. And so a lot of those desiccated organ companies, I think, are having challenges honoring the claims that they seek to the regenerative claims and so on and so forth, um, knowing that there's more and more and more and more competition. And, and again, relatively the same number of animals. And so <clears throat> I wouldn't want to compromise our values or our claims or our standards to try to seek out and find more organs. You got to keep in mind, you know, on an animal that you might process and it could be four or 500 pounds of, you know, meat and bone hanging there, um, or four or 500, it probably produce four or 500 pounds of meat, excuse me. Um, you know, you're going to get 20 pounds of heart and liver, 
you know? So on a, on a relative, on a proportionate basis, these things are, are scarce. And so I think for us, this, the blend, the ancestral blend is, um, a, a sort of a natural carcass fall off ratio for us. Meaning if we, you know, slaughter a hundred animals, we're only going to get a hundred hearts. We're only going to get a hundred livers. If we take half of that and we, we grind it up into regular ground meat without hearts and livers, we're only left with so many hearts and livers left to put into the ancestral blend. So it's part of balance. It's part of, and again, I don't think, again, from an evolutionary consistent perspective, the heart, the organs would be the first things our ancestors would have sought out. But, you know, from a, from a tribal and communal standpoint, there would have been, they would have eaten very little of it relative to then having to transition to eating the rest of the animal and the rest of the carcass. They would never have existed solely on those superfoods. And you probably could eat too much of them because they're so rich in something. So I think the balance is, is the key, whether it be for a health or practical business and supply chain perspective. Absolutely. And I remember very clearly the time that I spent at Rome Ranch for the bison harvest, which is associated with Fortune of Nature, not directly, but through it's, it's owned by Taylor Collins, who's one of your co-founders of Force of Nature and, and Epic. And so you, you guys kind of collaborate a little bit together, but it, it's a ranch outside of Texas that people can go to and, and experience firsthand a variety of different ranch related experiences. And the bison harvest was amazing because a bison was selected and slaughtered, which means it, it was, it was shot first and then brought up on, on a truck and, and opened up and you can see the inside of this bison. I thought blood would be gushing everywhere, but it's relatively clean and really quite beautiful. Similar to cutting a kiwi in half, you've got an incredible aesthetic inside and then opened up, the cuts were removed, the organs were removed and we were able to eat the organs fresh and the heart and the liver for folks who have never had a fresh heart and liver, you're going to maybe think this is hard to believe, but it was fresh and fruity. It reminded me of taking a, taking a, a bite of a in-season peach, just, you know, a little bit more subtle than that, but it was absolutely amazing how vibrant I, I, I felt even after eating a small, small amount. And, you know, that would have been our, our, our birthright would have been hunting an animal and then eating, eating the organs there fresh as if we were picking an apple from a tree and, and eating it. It really felt very similar to that, which was a pretty mind blowing experience for, for me. And, I don't know what direction you want to take you want to take that. Maybe you agree or disagree or have some more to share about Rome Ranch. But man, that entire experience was, was mind-blowing and, and amazing. And the, the organs were, were one thing that really stood out to me as, as fascinating. Yeah, I think it's 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 easy to ex- expand on and extrapolate when something that, you know, again, societally we've been told is unappealing or off-putting and have, you know, sort of been led to a, a, a conclusion and there's so many preconceived notions and then to see those dispelled in a moment is, is, is certainly a powerful experience. And I've, I've seen the same things and I would throw testicles on the list. Um, you know, again, not to be sensational, not to be provocative, but if you, you know, you, you want to be an open-minded person, then be open-minded and try things. And it's really remarkable just how much, um, value, and quality and nutrition and health um, that these animals offer to us. And I think you know, what I would expand on about your experience there is the connection that you get from one of those field harvests to the food supply. Most, most consumers never visit a ranch um, or a farm where their food comes from. Most consumers never participate in the process um, that involves, you know, taking a life and participating in the processing of it and, you know, converting it, um, into food and nourishment for yourself. And that's, that's a reality that we struggle with as humans. You know, it's like, this is the the uncomfortable part of the conversation where you talk about acknowledge a fundamental reality. It takes life to sustain life. It doesn't matter if it's plants. It doesn't matter if it's fungus. It doesn't matter if it's animals. They all live by the death of something else and the death of something provides life and opportunity. That's, that is the circle of life. We talk about it, we honor it, we appreciate its beauty, its harmony, but that cycle is life, death, decay, and new life. And we are a part of it. Something will survive by our deaths or for our deaths. And, and, you know, we, we survive by the deaths of animals and the deaths of uh, plants um, and the deaths of the animals that decayed so that those plants could have 
carbon and fertility in the soil to grow from and so on and so forth. And so, you know, I think if we can get past our blinders and our uncomfortable um, concern with our own mortality um, and recognize that something's going to die for us to live. And you put that aside, you don't have to like it, but you own it. You appreciate the gravity of it. I think that's important to be uncomfortable because it is a big deal. And then you look at it and you say, well, how do I make that something I'm proud of? How do I honor that reality? And how do I give reverence to whatever it is um, that I'm able to live for its sacrifice? And I think that's where, you know, it brings us back to that field harvest experience that you had and it brings us back to regenerative agriculture and where, you know, the life that animal lives should be celebrated. It should live its evolutionarily consistent life and exhibit its evolutionarily consistent behaviors and its evolutionarily consistent diet and provide its, in the case of ruminants like bison and beef, its keystone, necessary, fundamental ecosystem services onto lands. So how do we make sure that we celebrate its life and celebrate its contribution to both us, our health and our wellness, as well as to the systems that it comes from? and honor that, that whole cycle and appreciate. And then certainly, you know, understand having that connection, having that relationship, having participated firsthand, then as you noted, making sure to honor it in terms of not wasting it and not, you know, throwing those last few bites of meat into the garbage can. And then telling that story to your friends and family and sharing that, um, no, meat doesn't come from a grocery store uh, on a piece of styrofoam wrapped in cellophane. Um, meat comes from these living sentient beings and, and we should appreciate them and we should feel an emotional reality knowing that those animals will die for us, but we can't shield ourselves from the animal at the, that reality. All we can do is, is invest in ensuring that we can feel proud of that system and, and that full cycle and knowing that it's again, virtuous end to end, um, and simply burying our heads in the sand. Uh, or getting uncomfortable and trying to abstain from acknowledging and putting your blinders up um, doesn't do anybody any good, doesn't promote solutions, doesn't do yourself any good. It actually has allowed for so many of these wrongs and so many of these harms against those very things. It's allowed for shortcuts uh, in how we manage these animals, how we treat these animals. It's allowed for their, their suffering, their mistreatment. It's allowed for our own health and wellness. It is, it has promoted the compromise of all the things we've been talking about on this, in this conversation. We haven't a chance to, and in those experiences like you had awaken to that reality and begin to participate at an entirely new level with a whole new perspective and appreciation for the opportunity that we have afforded to us. Um, and I hope that you know, by giving those experiences to so many people that they're able to share that and expand that message. Powerful. Beautifully said. And, and thank you for all the work you're doing with Force of Nature to spread this powerful message and, and for being a force of nature yourself. I really appreciate everything that you've shared in this conversation and, and all the work that you're doing. I think that's a, a great spot to, to, con to conclude this conversation. Really powerful riff and Thank you for, for sharing your wisdom and, and your knowledge and everything here on this conversation today. Thanks a lot, Case. I, like I said at the start, uh, really appreciate the opportunity. Can't, can't share these messages without folks like you. So thanks for, for what you are doing. And um, if anybody's interested, we have an Instagram handle at, at Force of Nature Meets. Um, we have, a, as you noted, a podcast called Where Hope Grows. Um, and, and we have some blogs on our website and, um, we have a newsletter, you know, I think, I think these issues are important and yes, we have a company and yes, we sell things. Um, but I don't want you to feel like you have to buy anything from us to support what we're doing. You know, I, I would love it if folks would just follow us, um, and, and begin to open their eyes and pay attention to these issues. And if, if it strikes you to, you know, buy a force of nature product, great. If, if you just decide one day to make an unplanned trip to your local farmer's market and support some support somebody in your local community who's doing these things um, even better. And, and so, you know, again, I think the consumer holds all the power 
Um, and if we want more and we expect more, um, you know, we will get it if we do something about it. And I think, I, I hope folks take that step and I hope if we can connect you to some information that inspires you or inspires others, please do follow us. So thank you again, Casey.